apostles uh, knew that they were writing scripture and the record of that in scripture where they said, you know, hey, we're writing scripture. What we're doing is is writing the word of God out. So so that's where we've been. Where we're going tonight is to take a little bit of a tour probably the next couple of weeks in history. We're going to be spending most of our time with the apostolic fathers. Um, uh, some call it the... the the patriotic period. We'll <clears throat> we'll look a little bit at that, and then medieval period, and then modern period, kind of in 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 terms of time. And we're just looking at <clears throat> basically the history of the journey of the Bible, how it came through, what time, and and the reason we're doing that primarily to the beginning of our notes is to deal with some of the historic myths that are out there. So one of those historic myths is that Constantine uh, put together a council, gave the council the job of deciding which Bibles, which books belong in the Bible, and the Council of Nicaea fought over it, eventually voted on it, and established the canon. Uh, it's, it it <coughs> sounds good, it just never happened. So there's no record in any of the... Of the uh, Early church fathers, the first from uh, uh, from the time of Christ to A.D. 500, of any kind of vote on canon ever taking place. So we get into the medieval period. We're going to see more of that come up um, during the medieval church, which is where you're going to see the beginning of a split between East and West, uh, between uh, Catholic and uh, um, Greek Orthodox. And then ultimately to the Reformation. So, <clears throat> so we're just going to look at the history. What, when, what was happening when? How did this all come together? How did we get sixty-six books and and in, in the in the form that they're in today? So, <clears throat> just by way of rehearsal of where we've been, uh, the things we've already looked at, um, the development of the New Testament canon begins with the writing of the apostles. So. They, when Paul wrote a letter, he gave it to the church with instructions. Read this to the church and then send it to the other churches. And that's what they did. So they were receiving those letters, they were receiving the Gospels, and they were immediately functioning as Scripture for the church. At the, from the moment the Apostle put down his pen and it arrived wherever he sent it. Um, we will never find... Anywhere in church uh, history where you have Gospels other than Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. The argument about the Gospels doesn't happen until modern era. There, it wasn't back in the day. It was, there's never a canonical list put out by an ancient church that says we're using the Gospel of Thomas and we dropped Luke. It's always Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. It's always <coughs> the things that, that, that we have today uh, um, that they were utilizing, that they were using. So what we want to understand is that the picture in Scripture is that <coughs> anytime God moved in a redemptive way, it was followed by receiving uh, text. For example, when the establishment of the law happens, what's the result? We have... The law given, we have scriptures coming, we have the voice of God <clears throat> spoken through the prophets, right? And so all of that is God's voice to His people, God uh, 
God's revealing Himself to them. When we come to the close of the Old Testament, the Old Testament closes with the expectation of Messiah. So the expectation is uh, there's a coming prince. Messiah is coming. And you have 400 years of silence to mark it. The 400 years of silence is deafening. You have a lot of things written during that time that we'll call apocrypha. And when you look at the apocryphal writings... They all talk about the idea that there's been no prophet. There's been no prophet. There's been no prophet. And they're not claiming to be prophets. The apocryphal writings are guys writing out either their story or their history. First and Second Maccabees is one of the ones that we think about, which is just like a historical accounting of what was happening in Israel after the exile, how those things came down. There's also some legends that are put together and a variety of other things, none of which ever make the claim to be scripture but what they do say is there's not a prophet which means god's not talking god wasn't speaking to his people during that time the silence was deafening so when when jesus comes and we have the next redemptive work right we have salvation through the cross we the the community of faith is expecting scriptures and those scriptures were fulfilled in the apostles so the new testament consists of the writings of the apostles Uh, they the apostles were told by jesus that they were going to be able to remember the things he had done that the holy spirit was going to bring that to their remembrance john 14 26 jesus speaking to his disciples i'm not saying this doesn't have application to us but it certainly had application directly to the guys he's speaking to. The Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. And that has a special meaning to the disciples, right? To the apostles that were there, who are eventually, while they're going around and telling the stories and and sharing the gospel of what Jesus did, going to realize, if we don't write this down, it dies when we die. So they sit down. We've we've spoke about this before. Under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, God in in His providential way moving through the humanity of the writers guides them to write the things that we have today. John 16, 13 and 14 said, When the Spirit of truth comes, He will guide you into all truth, for He will not speak on His own authority, but whatever He hears, He will speak. He will declare to you the things that are to come. He will glorify me, for he will take what is mine and declare it to you. So the idea is, this is what is functioning primarily in the New Testament, with the exception, I want to say five books. With the exception of five books, this is every book in the New Testament. We'll talk about those in just a minute. So... By virtue of their office, and if you look back in the notes that we've, that we've gone over before, you can also look at the scriptures where they make the declaration themselves. They are giving out the word of God from God's lips to their pen. Putting it together for them so that they can bring the writing of scripture together. <clears throat> so, uh, if we accept the arguments for the traditional view of authorship of the New Testament writings then most of the New Testament canon has apostolic authority. Most of the New Testament canon is written by the apostles. Here's the list. Matthew, John, Romans to Philemon, everything Paul wrote, 13 epistles. 
uh, James, First, Second Peter, First, Second, Third John, and Revelation, all proclaim apostolic authority. It leaves out Mark, Luke, Acts, Hebrews, and Jude, who were all accepted by the early church fathers in the first century, in the first, in the first generation after Jesus, all accepted uh, because of their close association with the apostles. So Mark, from the earliest days, is the gospel that Peter preached. Luke, from earliest days, is the gospel Paul preached. Jude uh, was accepted based on his relationship with James, uh, an apostle, and the fact that he's the half-brother of Jesus. And Hebrews is accepted because of its Pauline, can't say uh, uh, authorship, because we can't prove Paul wrote it, but because of the Pauline influence. <clears throat> it's, it sounds like Paul. <clears throat> Reads like Paul, looks like Paul. In the first codexes. So when we come into transmission of the text, we'll talk about how the handwritten copies get to us. Okay, But but in the first codexes that are found, a codex is a book, an ancient book that has all these writings, many of these writings in them. In the ancient codexes that we have, <clears throat> first and second century, all of them have Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and never do they have another gospel. Never, ever, not one time, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. They also have all that we have written from Paul, all of the letters of Paul. And one codex was interesting to me, had all the writings of Paul and Hebrews in one book. So <clears throat> what we want to do is we want to recognize what was going on the first generation after Jesus. Not let's let's go in the 21st century and and tell fables about how the Bible comes to be, how what was going on. We have their writings. We have the things that the next generation after Jesus wrote. We have the things that the early church fathers put together. And when we look at those things, <clears throat> we begin to to describe them and read them and look at them. What we see is the scriptures, our New Testament, functioning as scripture. The first generation after Christ. So that early, it's functioning as a Bible. Now, I'm not trying to say there were never discussions throughout church history. Of course there was. And that should actually encourage us. It's good for us that the church would say, wait a minute, I don't know about this book of Hebrews. Who's the author? Because at some point, probably the first generation knows who the author is. And so that's why they accept it. You get three, four generations later, and guys are going, who wrote this again? And so they begin to challenge some of those books. And we'll see historically how those books uh, rose to the challenge and and ultimately were accepted. So we want to see that. And really, that's what we're going to be delving into a lot tonight to recognize that. So here, the last point that I, uh, I want to bring out in that is that for a book to belong in the canon, it is absolutely necessary for the book to have divine authorship. If the words of the book are God's words through human authors, and if the early church, under the direction of the apostles, preserved the book as part of Scripture, it belongs in the canon. So, if we can look back and see these things were being utilized, they functioned as Scripture in the early days, and there's not a reason for them not to function as scripture. In other words, they don't obviously lie. They don't. They're not obviously in some way false. Then 
then that's how and why they, they function in that way. So <clears throat> what I want you to see is, and this is why it's important, if we put something authoritative, we, we put some structure as authoritative over the Bible, then the Bible is not the ultimate authority. You get what I'm saying? So if I make the church the ultimate authority, and the church voted, and the church decided what was in here, then the church has authority over the Scripture, which is part of the problem in the Catholic Church. Is everybody tracking with me? Or Eastern Orthodoxy, the same way. So what we want to see is at the time of Paul, when Paul's writing his epistles, his epistles functioned as Scripture that moment that the church opened them up. When they would open them up and read them, and then they would spread around to the other churches. And Paul would say, also read the letter that I wrote to the Laodiceans, which was uh, the letter of Colossians. And, and spread these things around so that they were going from church to church. And how were they going from church to church? I'm not giving up my letter. So how are you going to get it? Make a copy. I'm going to sit down, I'm going to come over and say, I want that letter. Sit down and I'm going to copy it. And that's exactly... Well, we didn't have a copy machine. We weren't taking pictures with our phones. Kinkos, man. Right? I wish. If we had Kinkos, everything would be much simpler, maybe. But what they did is they copied. Now, I also want you to think about how they copied. We're not going to get too much into this, but they copied by candlelight. They copied quick as they could. They copied under threat of death because of you many times in history, especially in the early church fathers, if if they found you with the scriptures, they killed you. So just keep in mind, there's duress, there's things going on, and we can see that in the body of textual evidence that we have today. Okay? So all the way up until the Middle Ages, really through the Middle Ages, that's how the Bible was copied. By pen, sit down and copy out (coughs) the letter, and then you would take that back to wherever your church was or wherever you were going so that you could bring the message of the apostle home so we're going to look at the apostolic period and then the early patristic period um so basically we're going to look at a period of time from the time of jesus if you guys just want to kind of get a mindset uh paul's gonna die early 60s i'm given the benefit of a possible fourth missionary journey and i'm gonna say that well, John is going to die somewhere around 95. So, just to kind of give you a pocket of when were the apostles functioning, walking around, teaching, available. <clears throat> Keep in mind, the world in the beginning, the Christian world in the beginning is relatively small. It's not as big as our world today. Right? It's a relatively small area where wherein you can... The ability to reach an apostle to get confirmation on something was not impossible during their lifetime. Everybody okay? Tracking with me okay? So, the apostolic period. These writers are important because their writing overlaps with that of the apostles. I'm not saying that these writings are scripture. I'm just saying these guys wrote at the same time as the apostles wrote and they talk about them. And the way they talk about them helps me understand how did they see what the apostles were doing. Okay? That makes sense? <clears throat> so we look at it. The testimony of the epistle of Pseudo-Barnabas. They call it that because at one time they thought it was Barnabas who wrote it. <coughs> now they're not sure. The title of the epistle of Pseudo-Barnabas indicates uh, it was later wrongly ascribed to Paul's first associate. The work cites the Gospel of Matthew after stating 
that it is what God saith. The same writer refers to the Gospel of Matthew by the New Testament title of Scripture, which the New Testament says is inspired or breathed out by God, 2 Timothy 3.16. So, what does that mean? People at the time when the apostles were putting out the Word, this is uh, dated somewhere between 70 and 130, so it puts us in the (coughs) apostolic period. During that apostolic period, whoever wrote this writing that dates to that time we don't know is it claimed to be Barnabas but it's not but they wrote that Matthew was considered scripture and the words that God said and that runs at the same time as Matthew so to me that carries more weight than Bart Ehrman who is alive today and and looking backwards these guys whoever wrote this these guys were there at the time the next one we want to look at is Clement of Rome in his epistle to the Corinthians, uh, dates 95 to 97, so this puts him uh, around the same time as John. Clement of Rome, also a contemporary of the apostles, wrote his epistle after the pattern of Paul. In it, he quotes the synoptic gospels. Matthew, Mark, and Luke are directly quoted by him. After calling them scripture, he urges his readers to act according to that which is written. For the Holy Spirit saith, let not the wise man glory in wisdom. He's quoting uh, out of chapter 1, quoting Jeremiah 9.23. He further appeals to the Holy Scriptures, which are true, given by the Holy Spirit in chapter 45. New Testament is included as Scripture by the formula, it is written, uh, which is the same formula that Paul uses in the New Testament. And uh, as being written by the Apostle Paul with true inspiration so this is clement of rome he is a contemporary with the apostles he's not an apostle he's not writing scripture but he is writing about it okay and when he writes about it he is citing matthew mark and luke so if he's citing in 95 a.d matthew mark and luke what does that mean matthew mark and luke are already being disseminated by 95 a.d right that's first century so sometimes when you hear people talk about the Bible, it's confusing. When they say first century, that's everything up to 100. After 100, it becomes <clears throat> second century. Okay, could be 101, and they'll call it second century, and third century, and fourth century, and so on, and so on, and so on. So first century puts us in the time close to Christ. Okay, you have you have Jesus' death somewhere between 29 and 32. A.D., Paul's 30 years later, uh, um, John, you know, 60 years later. So, and everybody else somewhere in between. So when we, so when we look at it, it's, to me it is important to see those guys who dated around that same time frame, or the apostolic, uh, or what's called the early church fathers. Uh, next we have Polycarp. We, we probably all heard of Polycarp. Um, Polycarp was a disciple of the Apostle John. So not a one like him, him. So John the Apostle trained Polycarp. He became the Bishop of Smyrna. We've heard of Smyrna, right? Uh, one of the seven letters to the seven churches is written to Smyrna. What was it that Smyrna was known about in the book of Revelation that John wrote? They were known for martyrs, people who were dying for their faith. 
it's interesting that the Bishop of Smyrna, Polycarp, is one of those guys. His <clears throat> death at the hands of the Romans is uh, probably one of the great stories in Fox's Book of Martyrs, if you ever get a chance to peruse. Probably not something you want to read to your kids at night, but um, definitely has some very interesting uh, uh, depictions. Anyway... Polycarp is a disciple of the Apostle John, referred to the New Testament several times in his epistle, introducing Galatians 4.26 as the word of truth, and presenting citations of Philippians 2.16, 2 Timothy 4.10, and calling them the word of righteousness. In chapter 12, Polycarp cites numerous Old and New Testament passages, and he calls them scriptures. So, I want you to see... In the first century after Christ, it's already the Bible's already being used as authoritative in the church. That makes sense? Yeah. So already it's authoritative. Already guys are using it. Already guys are quoting. There's no church council yet. There's Nicaea, which is often referred to as the first church council, is not till 325. So this is 200 years before that. So that's what I just want you to see and, and recognize those things. Next one we'll look at is Papias. <clears throat> Papias wrote five books entitled The Exposition of the Oracles of the Lord. Now that's important because Paul used that term in speaking in the scriptures, right? What was the benefit? What was the benefit for the Jews? To them were given what? The oracles of God, right? The oracles of God were given. So what was he talking about there? Scripture. That they were given authoritative scripture. So he writes, Papias writes five books on the exposition of the oracles of God, uh, which is the same title uh, of the Old Testament used by Paul in Romans 3.2, revealing Papias' high regard for the New Testament as the very word of God. <clears throat> in the exposition of the oracles of the Lord, he included the New Testament. So in his five volumes, he's referring to what we know today as the New Testament. Can we go up one? Sure. Uh, under Polycarp, you say in chapter 12 of what? Chapter 12, what's it referring to? Of the Epistle to the Philippians. Polycarp's uh, book, The Epistle to the Philippians. Oh, okay. and, and all of those you can get, probably most of them you can find online. Uh, if you have a hard time finding them, holler at me and I can give them to you. But the probably the most expensive book series to buy on the face of the earth is the early church fathers. It's it's made out of gold. <laughs> so even on logos where there's no actual paper used to make the book, just <laughs> they, they they still want you to pay for the gold. So but the cool thing is you can then, you know, read his letter, the letters of, and that's not the only Polycarp has many um, that you can look at. You did what? Thank you for that. You're, that book. you're welcome. You bought <laughs> <clears throat> You're welcome. Okay, so in addition to these early books, ones that we won't dive into, the writings of Ignatius of Antioch. Uh, I actually am going to refer to him a little bit later. The Shepherd of Hermas. The Shepherd of Hermas is uh, a book that received a lot of popularity in the early church fathers. Um Never really viewed as scripture, <clears throat> but was very popular and often quoted by the early church fathers. The Didache, the Didache is a church manual. The Didache is, uh, I don't remember what Didache means right now, but <clears throat> it comes from didactic 
teaching, but I don't remember what didactic means, or I'd remember what didache is. So the but the idea is it's a it's put together. You're gonna look it up on your phone. You're a beautiful man. Nowadays, you cannot teach nothing bad because somebody's got a phone that's going to pop up and tell you what it means. So, maybe it means the teaching. I don't remember. But the teaching? Teaching, also known as teaching of the 12 apostles. Yeah. So, the, the idea of the didache is it's a church manual. How do we do baptism? How do we do the Lord's Supper? How, what are the, how are these things supposed to look? So that's early, right? That that comes out. You've you got this church manual from that dates back to to the year 100. So second century um, document that um, it at least says it came from the apostles. Whether or not we can tie that in or not, it is very interesting read. By the way, so if you get a chance to just read it and you want to see what uh, church functioned like in the year 100. You know, it helps you get into the mind of the people who were first uh, writing and reading the scriptures. That makes sense. So, anyways, the Didache, the Epistle uh, to Diognetus. Uh, so, if you take all this together, <clears throat> this important early material demonstrates that by AD 150, the early church, both East and West, accepted the New Testament claim for divine inspiration. The fathers looked upon these books with the same high regard as the New Testament writers did for the Old Testament. Uh, namely, as the inspired, authoritative, and absolutely true Word of God. So at the close of the apostolic period, with the death of the apostles and that final generation of, of their lives, you already have the Scriptures functioning in the church like they function in the church today. Okay, that doesn't mean later on people aren't going to argue. Well, have you learned anything about the church? Do you guys ever find people arguing in church? No, not anymore? Man, you should come to Calvary Chapel Buell. We have, <laughs> we have arguing <laughs> that we do. Don't we, Jace? Yes, sir. Yeah, Look how good he's being. I don't know. It makes me nervous. <laughs> Did you? We discuss them very passionately at times. All right, next is the early patristic. Period. So this is going to take us to 500. So this will lead us up into and past the Council of Nicaea, and we'll talk a little bit more about councils next week. Right now, we're just going to look at the record of, like we've been talking, the early church fathers. So after the apostolic period, beginning of the second century and following, uh, provided further testimony to the authority of Scripture. So the trustworthiness of the Word of God continued to have witnesses all the way through. I'm not having a hard time digging this stuff up. It's right there. Anybody can go find it. Um, uh, just a matter of, of where we look. So Justin Martyr. Now, as we come to the early patristic period, a lot more writing. A lot more writing. You've got the... The church, uh, uh, the the persecution of the church, is not at its height, and it's ultimately going to go to its lowest point during this period of time. By two, three hundred A.D., it's not popular to kill Christians anymore. So when it becomes unpopular to kill Christians, what do Christians do? Man, they start putting out more work, right? More, they're writing more things, or they're not afraid. 
to to vocalize. Yeah. And so along with that, you are also going to have at the same period of time a rise of heresies. So heresy is something that would go against what the apostolic fathers wrote. You've all probably heard of Gnostic Gnostics. Have you guys heard of them? The Gnostic heresy and the variety of heresies is really what drives the church councils. When somebody would come up and say Jesus isn't really God, the churches would have a council on whether or not Jesus is really God. Okay. Sometimes in those church councils, they would post Scripture. Here's what we understand the Scripture. But they don't vote. They're just talking about what Scriptures they're using. Right. So, and that ultimately is the point. It is going to, the Word of God as it is going to have the authority which ultimately guides the church through those periods of time. So when we look at uh, uh, we look at Justin Martyr, uh, he <clears throat> writes. Uh, he's a, arguably one of the first uh, apologetic guys. His book is called uh, Apology. <coughs> Justin Martyr spoke of the Gospels as the voice of God. He added, "We must not suppose that that the language proceeds from men." who were inspired, but from the divine word which moves them. Elsewhere, he declared that Moses wrote in the Hebrew character by the divine inspiration, and that the Holy Spirit of prophecy taught us this, telling us by Moses that God spoke thus. So he's quoting again in his, in his book, on not apology like I'm sorry, but apology in the terms of a defense, providing a defense for the faith on the inspiration of Scripture, uh, roughly around 165. Athanagoras of Athens in 177 said this, I think that you also with your great zeal for knowledge and your great attainments in learning cannot be ignorant of the writings either of Moses or of Isaiah and Jeremiah and the other prophets who lifted in ecstasy above the natural operations of their minds by the impulses of the divine spirit uttered the things with which they were inspired, the Spirit making use of them as flute, uh, as a flute player breathes into the flute. So, <coughs> speaking uh, primarily of the Old Testament, talking about, again, the inspiration of Scripture in 177. Uh, Tatian, uh, who is a disciple of Justin, uh, called John 1.5 Scripture and his apology, in uh, and, and most of these, you'll see, you'll see in the footnotes the uh, whatever it was called, the name of their books. In this case, it was Apology, <clears throat> Chapter Thirteen of Apology. In this work, Tatian made a passionate defense of Christianity and regarded it as so pure that it was incompatible with Greek civilization. He also wrote a harmony of the Gospels, Diatessaron, in one fifty to one sixty, which reveals his high regard for their divine authority. So in 110, well, roughly 150 to 160, when he wrote uh, Diatessaron, they're already putting together a harmony of the Gospels. So, which which we still see today. A lot of times when we go through the Gospels, where do our questions come up? In harmonizing the story. This one says it this way. That one says it that way. Um, how does how do they fit? How does that how do their stories come together? It's called a harmony of scripture. 
Uh, you still buy harmonies of Scripture a day. One of my favorite ones is a is an audio one that uh, that Dr. James White does through the entire Synoptic Gospel, which is like three hundred and some messages, but very informative. I think it's on sermon audio. Sermon audio. Uh, that's that's almost as many as Piper's Roman series. Just so you know. And Piper's Hebrew series is not far behind that. So, but anyways, so so you have uh, um, the idea of harmonization at that point. Irenaeus in, uh, from one thirty to two o two. I think Irenaeus. I wrote a paper on Irenaeus in Bible College and Ignatius. Those were the two guys in church history. Just as a uh, totally insignificant point. Uh, to, to share. Irenaeus is reported uh, yeah, right. to have actually heard the teachings of Polycarp, disciple of the Apostle John. In his treatise, Against Heresies, that's the name of his book, Irenaeus referred to the divine authority of the New Testament, declaring, this is a quote from that, For the Lord of all gave the power of the Gospels to his apostles, through whom we have come to know the truth, and that is the teaching of the Son of God. This Gospel they first preached. Afterwards, by the will of God, they handed it down to us in the Scriptures to be the pillar and ground of our faith. Uh, Chapter 3, verse 67 in the book Against Heresies. It's in the parentheses there if you guys uh, want to take the time to look it up. In fact, Irenaeus affirmed his belief in the inerrancy of Scripture, proclaiming the faith in Scripture and tradition in which he acknowledged the apostles to be above all falsehood. He called the Bible the Scriptures of Truth. He was most properly assured that the Scriptures are indeed perfect since they were spoken by the Word of God and His Spirit. And the references to those. Another quote by Irenaeus. If, however, we cannot discover explanations of all those things in Scripture which are made the subject of investigation... Yet let us not on that account seek after any other God besides Him who really exists. For this is the very greatest impiety. We should leave things of that nature to God who created us, being most properly assured that the Scriptures are indeed perfect, since they were spoken by the Word of God and His Spirit. But we, inasmuch as we are inferior to and later in existence than the Word of God and His Spirit, are on that very account destitute of the knowledge of His mysteries. So at the time of Irenaeus, still kind of at times struggling with some of the things that the Scripture lays out and ultimately relying on the fact that the authority lie with the Scripture and not with us in our ability to interpret so sometimes you put things on the shelf. We read the scripture and we say, I don't understand how, how that works, how that fits. I don't get it. What do we do with it? We put it on a shelf until we have more knowledge, until we understand more fully. There are things that were on my shelves when I first read the Bible that are no longer on my shelves now 20 some years later. Amen. Right? So as we grow, as we learn, as we, as we gain understanding, more things may go up. The things that weren't up there before, and things that were up there come down. Does that make sense to you guys? So, but the point is, Irenaeus is saying, but the, this is scripture. This is where authority lies. This is this is the truth. We hold to that being true, 
and we recognize our limitations in always connecting all the dots. All right? Uh, Clement of Alexandria, <coughs> from 150 to 215. Clement became the head of the church school at Alexandria in 190, but was compelled to flee in the face of persecution in 202. He held to a strict doctrine of inspiration, which can be seen in his Stromata. That's the name of the book, uh, or scroll. I don't know what you would call them then, but his writings. There is no discord between the law and the gospel, but harmony. So when he says between the law and the gospel, what's he talking about? Old and new. Okay. Uh, For they both proceed from the same author. Differing in name and time to suit the age and culture of their hearers by a wise economy, but potentially one, since faith in Christ and the knowledge of the gospel is the explanation and the fulfillment of the law. Now, all those dots are when he used extra words to say the same things. You guys are welcome to look it up. Um, It's listed there underneath. Another quotation. He who believeth then... The divine scriptures with sure judgment receives in the voice of God who bestowed the scripture a demonstration that cannot be impugned. So again, he is looking at the New Testament and the Old Testament, receiving them both as scripture. Clement of Alexandria also called the gospel scripture in the same sense as the law and the prophets. And he writes of the scriptures in the law and the prophets and besides by the blessed gospel, which are valid from their omnipotent authority, meaning they come from God and are authoritative, he went so far as to condemn those who rejected Scripture because they are not pleased with the divine commands, that is, with the Holy Spirit. So, even uh, in 150 A.D., right, when we come in the, in the mid-2nd century, 150 to 190, you have already attacks against the authority of the Scripture and the defense of the authority of the Scripture. Same way we have it today. You guys are all welcome to go buy Rob Bell's book, and he'll tell you why the Bible is nothing more than a collection of songs and poetry and has no real authority in the life of a believer today. Rob Bell is supposedly a pastor and a believer. Um, And you can read responses to that that say, no, the Word of God is authoritative. It is Inerrant, it is inspired, and it functions as the Word of God. So, what I want you to see is the one thing that is constant is men. Right? And the enemy. And the enemy. That's right. That's how the attacks are going to come. That's how the attacks came. But here we have, now we're looking at the first generation post Christ. Okay? So, this is a generation after the apostles. These are the guys who learned from the apostles. And this is what we have their writings, and this is what they said. This is what they wrote about. Tertullian, uh, who wrote uh, from 160 to 220, Tertullian is the father of Latin theology. <clears throat> he never wavered in his support of the doctrine of inspiration of both Old and New Testament. In fact, he maintained that the four Gospels are reared on the certain basis of apostolic authority. And so are in, are inspired in a far different sense from the writings of the spiritual Christian. All the all the faithful, it is true, have the Spirit of God, but not all the faithful are apostles. Do you hear what he's saying? 
The apostles were distinctly gifted by God to write inspired Scripture. You and I, we have the Holy Spirit and we can write inspiring things and we can write true things, but we no longer are writing the very Word of God. Does that make sense? There's the, the idea that Tertullian is talking about is at his time, in his mind, and in the mind of the early church fathers, the canons closed. Everything that's going to be written by the apostles has been written. The apostles are all gone. And now he's saying, you and I, there's still guys, Justin, Tertullian, Clement, Irenaeus, all these guys are writing good works. Right? And, and they have value in reading, just like a commentary has value in reading today. But when we read a commentary today, what do we say? It's not inspired. The Bible is inspired. The commentary may be good and useful and valuable, but it's not Scripture. And that's what Tertullian was, was talking about. He's saying, look, we, including himself, we're not apostles. I'm not writing a new gospel. I'm just writing about the gospel that has already been given. Um, a quote from him. The apostles have the Holy Spirit properly, who have Him fully in the operations of prophecy and the efficacy of healing virtues and the evidences of tongues, not particularly as others have. Thus, He attached the Holy Spirit's authority to that form of advice to which He willed us rather to attend. And forthwith, it became not and advice of the Holy Spirit, but in consideration of His majesty, a precept. What's he mean? He is saying, when the apostles speak, we should obey. It's just like it's coming from God. You and I, we can, we can share to one another. We can, we, we, same Spirit, same tongue, same healing functions in the church today, but it's not under apostolic authority. The apostles were, were uh, a tier above, if you will. Uh, another quote. We assemble to read our sacred writings. If any peculiarity of the times makes either forewarning or reminiscence needful. However, it be in that respect, with the sacred words we nourish our faith, we animate our hope, we make our confidence more steadfast, and no less by inculcations of God's precepts we confirm good habits. What's he talking about? He's talking about the fact that the Word of God is authoritative and it is changing the way they do things. They are wanting to conform themselves to the Word of God. And he's writing about the New Testament, already functioning in the church, first generation after Christ. It's important to understand these things because this is not the stories you're going to hear. The stories you're going to hear is it's 4th, 5th century at best, and a group of guys got in a big fight over what should be in the Bible, and the guys who were strongest won. So, you know, there were other books that could have been considered that haven't been considered. Maybe we should all read the Gospel of Thomas. You guys ever read the Gospel of Thomas? Gospel of Thomas closes with the idea that only men can be uh, close to God. I don't want to say it all the way to salvation, but pretty close to the term, you have to be a man to be saved. And so Jesus told his disciples, don't worry about that. Uh, any woman who becomes a man is going to be saved. Not, not weird? I found it confusing. Praise the Lord. Yeah. 
uh, confusing because you're you're reading a fourth or fifth century document that that pretends to be written by Thomas, which is not written by Thomas, or at least certainly not the Thomas it pretends to be written by, and it is Gnostic, so it is filled with Gnostic teaching. That's right. That's right. Exactly. So. Um, not that there's not a value to understand the mindset of the Gnostic, okay, but you understand when you look at it, it's not Scripture. It don't even sound like Scripture. You read it, and you read the Gospels next to it. Go ahead. Knock yourself out. And when you put those two side by side, you're going to say, this does not even sound like the Bible at all. Why doesn't it? Because it doesn't have a divine authority. It doesn't, it doesn't, it doesn't come to us like from the lips of God. You hear obvious... Uh, stories engrafted into the Gospel of Thomas. Jesus uh, uh, made clay doves that came to life. A little boy teased him, and so he struck him dead. I have read these. Okay, the little boy teased him, he struck him dead, and then uh, later on, I think he feels bad about it, so he brings him back to life. Um, so, but anyways, the, the point is, when you when you look at those things, when someone says that's on the same plane as Scripture, it's ridiculous. Because the early church fathers, the first generation after Christ, never even heard of it. What they were utilizing was the things that the apostles wrote. And that's what these early church fathers are saying. They're saying, look, these are the things that are changing our life. This is the Word of God that is affecting us from the inside out. So that's what we want to be able to uh, hold on to. Let's look at the next quote. Uh, the statements, however, of Holy Scripture will never be discordant with truth. A corrupt tree will never yield good fruit unless the better nature be grafted into it. Nor will a good tree produce evil fruit except by the same process of cultivation. So looking at the fact that the, the Holy Scriptures are, are able to produce good fruit in the life of believers. <clears throat> Last quote on the whole then. If... That is evidently more true, which is earlier. If that is earlier, which is from the very beginning. If that is from the beginning, which has the apostles for its authors, then it will certainly be quite as evident that that comes down from the apostles, which has been kept as a sacred deposit in the churches of the apostles. Let us see what milk the Corinthians drank from Paul. To what rule of faith the Galatians were brought for correction. What <coughs> the Philippians, the Thessalonians, and Ephesians read by it. What utterance also the Romans give, so very near to the apostles, to whom Peter and Paul conjointly bequeath the gospel, even sealed with their own blood. We also have St. John's foster churches. For although Martian rejects his apocalypse, the order of the bishops thereof, when traced up from their origin, will yet rest as John as their author. In the same manner is recognized the excellent source of the other churches. I say therefore that in them, and not simply such uh, of them as were founded by apostles, but in all those which are united with them in the fellowship of the mystery of the gospel of Christ, that gospel of Luke, which we are defending with all our might, 
has stood its ground from its very first publication. The same authority of the apostolic churches will afford evidence to the other gospels also, which we possess equally through their means and according to their usage. I mean the gospels of John and Matthew, whilst that which Mark published may be affirmed to be Peter's, uh, whose interpreter Mark was. For even Luke's form of the gospel men usually ascribe to Paul. So when we look at their writings, okay, we're, we're in the beginning of the second century. <coughs> we're looking at the writing of Tertullian. Well, he's talking about our New Testament. You guys recognize those books, right? You didn't hear Gospel of Thomas in there, did you? Or the Shepherd of Hermas or, or some other weird thing that you've never heard of before? No, what did you hear? The same books that we're looking at in the New Testament today is what he's describing, is what he's talking into which... He's, uh, he's giving authority. Um, next, Hippolytus from 170 to 236. Hippolytus is a disciple of Irenaeus. Okay, we talked about Irenaeus earlier. Exhibited the same deep sense of reverence towards Scripture. Speaking of the inspiration of the Old Testament, he said, The law and the prophets were from God who in giving them compelled his messenger to speak by the Holy Spirit, that receiving the inspiration of the Father's power, they may announce the Father's counsel and will. In these men, therefore, the word found a fitting abode and spoke of himself. For even then he came as his own herald, showing the word uh, who was about to appear in the world. Speaking of Christ. Of the New Testament writers, Hippolytus uh, declared, These blessed men, having been perfected by the spirit of prophecy and worthily honored by the word himself, were brought to an inner harmony like instruments. And having the word within them, as it were, to strike the notes, by him they were moved and announced that which God wished. For they did not speak of their own power, be well assured, nor proclaim that which they wished themselves, but first they were rightly endowed with wisdom by the word, and afterwards well foretaught of the future by visions. And then, when thus assured, they spake that which was revealed to them by God alone. He also said the scripture deals falsely with us in nothing, saw the inerrancy in the inspiration of the word of God. Whatever things then the Holy Scripture declared, let us look, and whatsoever things they teach, these let us learn. Not according to our own will, nor according to our own mind, nor yet as using violently those things which are given by God, but even as He has chosen to teach them by the Holy Scriptures, so let us discern them. So Hippolytus, talking again about the authority of the Scripture, First generations coming after Christ. So, very early in church history. Uh, then we come to Origen. Origen uh, is a successor of Clement at the School of Alexandria. He's uh, the next guy who's going to come in. Remember, we talked about Clement, uh, who was at the same time as the apostles. <coughs> he held that God gave the law and the prophets and the gospels being also the God of the Apostles and of the Old and New Testaments. He wrote, This Spirit inspired each one of the saints, whether prophets or apostles, and there is or was not one Spirit in the men of the Old Dispensation and another in those who were inspired at the advent of Christ. What's he saying? Same Holy Spirit 
working in that's right working in the old testament and the new origin's view of the authority of scripture is this that scriptures were written by the spirit of god and have a meaning not known to all but to those only on whom the grace of the holy spirit is bestowed in the words of wisdom and knowledge he went on to assert that there is a supernatural element of thought throughout all of the scriptures even where it is not apparent uh, to the uninstructed. So here are a couple of quotes from Origen that we'll take a look at, and then we'll look at a list, uh, a, a canonical list from him. We, however, in conformity with our belief in that doctrine, which we assuredly hold to, uh, to be divinely inspired, believe that it is possible in no other way to explain and bring within the reach of human knowledge this higher and diviner reason as the Son of God than by means of those scriptures alone which were inspired by the Holy Spirit, i.e. the Gospels, the Epistles, the Law, and the Prophets, according to the declaration of Christ Himself. So again, the point I want to make, all of this is pre-Nicaea, before church councils. This is the church functioning utilizing what you and I call the New Testament today. So, it's not something that was sprung on people later and passed by a vote. It was something that naturally happened through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit and the lives of the apostles and those that the apostles uh, granted authority. So, we we see the second quote, we must, in order to establish the positions we have laid down, adduce the testimony of Holy Scripture. And that this testimony may produce a sure and unhesitating belief, either with regard to what we have still to advance, or to what has been already stated. It seems necessary to show in the first place that the Scriptures themselves are divine, uh, were inspired by the Spirit of God. Um, Next we have uh, uh, one of the lists of canon he talks about in his... uh, in one of his books, so we can see what he saw as as authoritative in the New Testament. Among the four Gospels, which are the only indisputable ones in the Church of God under heaven, so keep in mind, like I told you, you'll never find a list of the Gospels that does not include Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. They were always together. Just like that. Crazy, but true. We have the list of the four Gospels. He says, I have learned by tradition that first was written that according to Matthew, who was once a tax collector, but afterwards an apostle of Jesus Christ, who published it for those who from Judaism came to believe. He composed it, uh, composed as it was in the Hebrew language. Second, that according to Mark, who composed it in accordance with the instructions of Peter, who in the Catholic epistle uh, acknowledges him as a son, saying, She that is in Babylon, elect together with you, salutes you, so does Mark, my son. He's talking about, uh, the Catholic doesn't mean Catholic in the sense of the church, it means universal. He's talking about his first letter, the first Peter. First uh, Peter verse 13 is what he's quoting. <clears throat> Thirdly, uh, that according to Luke, the gospel commended by Paul, uh, and composed for those who from the Gentiles came to believe, and after them all, that according to John. So Origen, talking about the four Gospels, where they came from, this is, again, first generation, 
uh, after the apostles, after Christ, um, already functioning, not needing anybody's special vote, uh, already functioning, passed down with authority um, to the other churches. Um, so we have uh, like 25 more. You guys get the point? Yes. Or do you want me to read them all? Okay, so <laughs> go look through them because I, I tried to put together as many as I could find. Um, but the idea that I want you to see, when we come to the Middle Ages, we're going to see church battles, church fights, and, we'll, and we're going to talk next time about some of the heresies that came out during this period of time, <clears throat> which uh, caused men in dealing with those heresies, is Jesus God, is He not? Um, what about uh, these other guys who say they, they are, are writing other uh, scriptures, the Gnostic uh, teachers that were coming forth, uh, Marcion and, and uh, Marion and some of the others that come through, um, challenge the church to really define her doctrine, define um, true from, from false, and that's what ultimately is going to lead us to a finished, closed canon that, that we have, just like the one we have in front of us right now. So, we'll talk a little bit about that, and then we'll move into the Middle Ages and see what happened to the Bible during the Middle Ages. But uh, what I want you to see, immediately after Christ, it's functioning. It's working. It's not waiting till the 5th century uh, to be established. It is already being passed around. Um. If that was the concept, uh, which I believe it was, if that was the concept um, when the letters were sent to the Galatians or Ephesians or wherever they were sent to, why why did we not do? Why did they not keep that original letter? Why would they write? Why would they copy it and then? Because we don't have the originals, right? No, but the but we don't have we don't have any of the originals, uh, or, and I doubt they'll ever find an original. Um, uh, I won't say. I won't say never. I won't say never. Well, they date. They date the writings that we have based on uh, uh, writing style, uh, vocabulary, paper, ink, uh, how they used, how they, what what methods they used in writing, and so they can they can get relatively close as they go through. As far as I know, the earliest thing we have. Is is going to be dated in the second century, one hundreds. The vast majority of writings that we have now <coughs> are probably Middle Ages. Middle Ages really put out a lot of of copies of the Scripture. So what they did, um, they they at the time nobody thought about. For them, it wasn't important that we held on to to the originals, what was important was we get the message out to as many people as we can. That's why what we see is a width of copying. Not like telephone. You guys know how the people talk about it like telephones? Not like telephone. It's, it's wide, not narrow. Do you understand what I mean? So you have thousands of copies spread out wide in the same period of time. So errors stick out. Um... And then, uh, it, you know, it increases if, even as you get further in time. So it's not a single line of communication coming through time. You understand? Mm -hmm. It is wide. There is 
more, you know, you guys I'm sure have all heard this. There's more attestation to the uh, New Testament uh, uh, writings than to any other book in all of history for all time. Nothing uh, has as many copies as the New Testament. The reason that's important is that as we look at it, and we'll talk about it when we do textual transmission, as we look at it, it will show us where someone tries to put something in that doesn't belong. It'll stick out. Because you'll say, look at all these copies, and none of those have that. Where'd that come from? Texas Receptus and Texas Critical. Sure. You're going to look at uh, uh, Sidiaticus, Vaticanus, uh, huge bodies of texts. And we, the reason why those are valuable is because they'll show that. They will help see when those things pop up. So sometimes, remember I told you when somebody's writing, think about how they're writing candlelight, I'm tired, I'm afraid. It's possible that I have done this, sitting down and typing at a computer and trying to type out a, a sentence that I'm reading on the screen, you know, and I'm, or on, out of a book, and I'm typing it, and I've jumped from one line to the next line below and missed something in the middle. You guys ever done that? And there and and there. Yeah, and I just jumped from and to and. We see those things in in the transmission of the text. Now, it doesn't affect, it hasn't changed anything because we have this width of copies, which I think ultimately, that's right, which I think ultimately it was God's providence to how his word was going to get to us. I think it's it's fascinating that a guy just like Bart Ehrman, I heard his interview (laughs) Um, he was interviewed on radio and uh, uh, was on an atheist program and they said, hey, they were all excited because Barterman hates God and hates the Bible and he never has nothing good to say about it. And the guy said, well, we don't have the originals. They're all talking about how dumb we are. They don't have the originals and we don't really ever know what the Bible really ever said. And so the guy says to him, well, what do you think the Bible said in the, in the originals? And Barterman said in front of his entire audience, Pretty much what they say now. What's his point? I can't say that it was a totally different message because I see the width of text and it's all here. We have it. I love how James White says it. James White says it's like looking at a a 100-piece puzzle and you have 110 pieces. You don't have holes. You just have have some that you say, "Where, where does that go? You know, and you look at, but you, you'll decipher that through the text. You'll say, oh, I can see in this puzzle piece is a tree, but my puzzle is a desert. There's no tree in the desert. You, you get what I'm saying? This doesn't fit. So, so that's, that's the challenge of textual transmission. So I think, to answer your question, it's God's providence of getting his word to us that led to the width of copy. And I also think it's God's providence that we don't have the originals, because if we did... We would be in danger of worshiping those, you know, because, oh, we, we found them. Here they are. I, I already, every time I hear they found a new text, I get excited about if how early is it going to be and what's it going to talk about and, and what new mysteries may we, may we discover, new uh, 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 information or evidence on, uh, on the things that we already have. So, so I would think that it's just, in, you know, seeing a guy had... I knew thought uh, interpreted this as scripture, and the first one would have been like, "Okay, check it out. You can look at it, but shh, under the glass." You know? <laughs> yeah, and I guarantee, you know, somewhere in a cave, somewhere, Some, someplace. That's what I mean, you know, the the things they valued—that's what we discover in Qumran, right? right? What they valued, they saved. Yeah. 
And so, um, sure, that's how we have most of the Dead things that we have. Dead Sea Scrolls was Qumran, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So the de- and they just recently had found Probably. another cave with... Uh, a bunch more. Uh, with more. The, the, the sad thing is it had already been raided. And uh, what they found were scrolls that were prepared for writing but didn't have any writing on them yet. Uh, but there were broken jars that had other scrolls that were missing. So, you know, the way that we got some of the Dead Sea Scrolls is Bedouins found them and sold them. And yeah. you go to Israel, they tell you the story. I forget. The first guy gets like 10 bucks. Uh, <laughs> and the next guy gets, you know, millions. So uh, the Bedouins learn. It's better to be second in that case. Yes, it's better. <laughs> it's better to be the next guy. <laughs> and then the guy who, pay, the guy who <laughs> pays millions, and then the nation of Israel comes and says, oh, that's a, you know, National antiquity, you get to donate it to us. We'll give you a you know, tax write-off if you're ever in Israel. <laughs> so if I'm hearing you correctly, the reason why you're outlining all this stuff is to say that, that the traditions of men, when they come in, the Gnostic ideas and these other perspectives, when they twist Scripture, it's just that. It's men twisting Scripture because we have the absolute from the beginning. This is being taught as the absolute word of God. So it's not the from day of, one. Yeah, it's not. It's the, not your perspective, my perspective. We voted on it. Right. This is what was written. That's right. And has been carried across time. That's right. One of the things we'll look at when we talk about models of canon, which will probably be at least one, not next week, but the following maybe, when we talk about models of canon, I'm going to talk about the self-authenticating model, which is what I think the Bible is. It, it, it authenticated itself when it came from the pen of the apostles and had authority immediately, and that's why it can still have authority today because someone somewhere is not picking. Right. Someone somewhere is not saying, no, nah, we're going to cut that out. Now, today they have places like the the <coughs> Jesus Seminar. You guys heard of the Jesus Seminar? The red so letter. The, huh? Or the red letter. Yeah. So the, the Jesus Seminar, what they do is they have, I forget who's on it, but... Uh, uh, there's debates with the guys online if you if, if you ever want to look at it. I'm not even sure if any of them were believers. But they decided, and it's probably been 20 years ago or more that they did it. They held their own meetings with a group of who they considered scholars. And they decided what Jesus really said. As opposed to what the Bible says. And so they're you know, going through the Bible and saying, no, pride didn't say that, pride didn't say that, pride didn't say that. By what authority? Well, none. By their own authority that well, they're it's that not, they it's claim. Nothing new. It's what Satan did with Jesus when he sure half God said. You go all the way back to Genesis three, right? Yeah. Half God said. So the so yes, it's nothing new. But the the point is what we what we want to understand when we talk about the Bible is there has never been a council that sat in authority over the Bible. The Bible functioned. As authoritative from the beginning. That's the first first thing I, when I got to sit down when we got into the really hard discussions with the Mormons, uh, some friends of ours. Um, you know, we were up all night debating. Can you trust the Bible? You know, and and I know about the Council of Nicaea, and that's really where they focused. That was their whole thing: is hey, this this guy who wasn't even really a Christian put all this stuff together and said this is what the Bible is and if you don't like it I'll kill you and to be honest I didn't really have a lot of I'm like I knew about the council and I knew that's kind of maybe where we we put that's in my mind where I put the stamp like 
then it became the Bible. <coughs> I knew they were the books were out there, uh, but going through some of these things, when he starts talking, I think when you did this before, that's when the um, I can't remember what Sinaiticus, you're a smart guy. Uh, it was some section, but it was um, all the books of Paul were already together, and this was way back in the day. Like, yeah, uh, and it's a just yeah. mentioned that a few. Uh, it's in the I can't remember. It was in the 100, but it's one of the largest pieces that we have together um, of all of the. Uh, it's like 500, 600 pages yeah. long, and it's... You'll hear people talk all the time. When, we, when they talk about the text, they'll act like all we ever find are fragments. Fragments, right. We do find fragments. Some fragments are very small. Some some of the fragments are like the size of a postcard. Three, two verses. <laughs> you know, so it's not very big. But that's not all we have. Right. We have entire codices of multiple books that that have also been found that, that are interesting... When you look at, but but again, when if I was attacking, I would focus on the the argument that's easy to kick over. You know, well, all you have is a bunch of stamps, and you put all them stamps together. Who knows what it really says? And you're missing spots. You're not filling. Right. In, you're filling in the gap. Man's making it up. But again, when the reality is, even if we had no copies, and all we use was early church fathers, the guys I've been quoting. We could put together the entire Bible by their own quotes. Well, they were so close to that time. Like it's they're just right like there. Your, your family stories that get passed down. Like the the oldest people, they were there. They heard it. They saw it. Yeah. They, I was yeah. there when they did that. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I was there. You you have Polycarp sitting down and talking to guys and saying, "Well, John told me this." Well, John, yeah, you know John, the, the beloved apostle. Yeah, he he taught me. I was one of his disciples. Yeah. And then I'm trying to remember the next guy after him. You guys would know his name. I don't know why I can't. My my, my brain pushes information out when it takes other information in, and I can't always grab a hold of it. But um, you know, it is. Uh, it's it's just exciting to see, and we have their writing. Nobody's disputing their stuff. Nobody's saying, these guys didn't say that. They're right here. You can't say they didn't say that. In fact, in order to look at their stuff, you've got to pay $1,000 just to get the dumb books. So you, but when you, when you look at it, you go, wow, look at this. It's already functioning. So it's just this, the story is, if you tell a lie enough, Everybody starts to believe it. That's what I was going to say about families. Be careful. Yeah. <laughs> and if we, and so if you keep saying, if people keep saying, well, it was a council of Nicaea, Constantine, the emperor, made a decision that the churches were fighting too much and they needed to figure out what. I've said these words. It's believable. Yeah. It sounds. So, what was the council of Nicaea then? I mean, what was their intent? The council of Nicaea is. Uh, it, their intent was dealing with heresy. So, and that's why they gathered. And then you'll see... It wasn't to the debate. was had nothing to do with the Bible. Canon. Nothing to do with canon. Never, not one church council sat down to debate canon in the early church fathers up through the patristic period, up to 500. So were they debating the... Deity of Christ. Okay. Uh, they're debating the Trinity. Okay. They're debating doctrine. The our comprehension of doctrine taught in scriptures and and utilizing scripture to do so. And they would they would list and the council. I'm not saying that the councils don't list 
books of the Bible, they do list books of the Bible. But their purpose wasn't to say, here's what the council is saying is authoritative. Right. You know, it's, it's here's what the council's using. It, here's the books that we were talking about. Here's the, the quotations that, that are being published at that time. And then you're going to have <clears throat> different lists of canon, uh, which simply means a rule of faith. You have different lists of canon coming, starting to come out of different people. They're going to say, "Well, you know, here's these are the books I recognize. These are the books I see." And like I said, it's important that they struggled with a with a couple. The only the only ones I want to say, Marcion or Marion, they, they shouldn't name people the same. But they, he had a he had I think he's one of the earliest lists. I'll, we'll talk about it next time. But he's one of the earliest lists that that bring up and then most often the guys especially the heretical guys well what what things are they going to support they're going to support the things that that are about their heresy here's how i've developed this view that's right and so and that's why the councils will come together battle it out usually that two guys in the when we get to the middle ages they kill each other uh you know often burn burn Mm -hmm. one or the other at the stake you know, you have all kind of crazy. You, if you study church history, what you find out is the church is just broken as everybody else. And we knew that coming in, right? Don't think you can't win, though. Right? You're gonna, <laughs> you're gonna, you're gonna I better be able to prove that, or they're gonna burn me. <laughs> yeah, they are. They'll gonna, burn me. So when you see when you see you know well, L- Luther you way back in the whatever nailing his ninety five thesis on the on the door, yeah, yeah it's like uh, it's a big deal. Yeah. Because when I do this, the the, the other side are going to come for me, which they did. So that's why the church did that in the beginning before Luther, though, is they wanted to be the ultimate. What we say is absolute. That's right. why they took the scripture out you of the hands of the, the right. common man. You have a shift going now to bring authority to the church rather than to, to God Himself. Yeah. So uh, so and those things will you know in God's providence, it's all going to come out. Mm-hmm. It's all going to come together the way. God wants to. So we'll look at some of those, specifically councils and and heresies. I'll, I'll uh, dive in a little more to Bruce Metker's uh, uh, book and try to give you an idea of the councils that took place during here and what they were dealing with. Uh, and then we'll kick off the medieval period. Otherwise, all we'll do is church history. Church website? What is it? CalvaryChapelBuell.com okay. under... Ministries, 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 and then school of, ministry. school of ministry, and there's the notes. So as soon as I finish whatever I get finished for next week, which won't be super early, sorry, <laughs> it'll it, like you know Thursday morning. I don't know. It was before noon? I give it to you, didn't it? I think so. Um, anyways, uh, if you guys look on it, it'll be up there. Uh, if, if at least you gives you, and you can definitely get the old and the old teachings that are recorded. <laughs> Sound good? Well, so we'll dive into the next part next time, uh, uh, and then we'll continue once we finish. Kind of a brief. This is I know it didn't seem brief, but this is brief for church history. My church history class was a lot longer, but a brief journey just following the scripture through time. Okay, and then we're going to talk about why that's important. What do we see actually happen historically and what model of canon does that fit in into? Okay? So we'll and then we'll get into the textual stuff. 
So a few more weeks. I have one couple more. One, just one more question. You kept saying first generation or first guys after. Well, aren't all those guys from the 100s, aren't they second generation, third generation even? Yeah. So the generation of the apostles goes up to 100. Okay. So then I count the guys. Well, once we get into two and three, yeah. Okay. Then we're we're the next generation or the next generation. So I may have said next generation to guys that were that were two hundred or something. Okay. But, but basically, I the gener I'm just going by a hundred year generation. Obviously, some of those guys didn't live to be ninety, like John did. Yeah. Or hundred. <clears throat> yeah. So, but just just as a rough. Is that how speech. they would describe them first generation, second generation? No, they would call them first century, second century. Okay. Right. First century guys, second century guys, third century guys, which is all the number previous. So third century is the 400s. Gotcha. Wait. Yeah, yes, like yeah. we're in the 21st century now, it's 2017 going all the yeah, way up yeah. to... So you guys get... It goes one way or another. If I said it wrong, switch it. Wait, stop, reverse that. <clears throat> yeah. Somebody want to pray? And we can keep discussing as long as we want. Ezra? Sure. Will you pray? Yeah. All right. Lord, we thank you for this time that we could uh, gather and learn about the Bible and, and history and the, the uh, things that people went to to learn about you and to spread your word bring us home safely you pray amen. amen amen you got a couple questions jay i do oh.